Chapter sixty five of Taken at the Flood by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sixty five. It is the tale which angry conscience tells. Edmund Standon put the roll of paper in his breast pocket and took his leave of the sick woman, wondering at the mother's unselfishness, which even on a deathbed made the thought of a daughter's peril paramount above all personal suffering anxious as he felt about sylvia's fate he stopped to appeal to mrs ledlam on behalf of the helpless invalid upstairs volunteering to pay any charges that might be incurred in careful nursing and to reward kindness by liberal donations mrs ledlam who was soft-hearted wept and promised to do her best we'll move her down into mr perriam's room it's better than where she is and she shall have every attention shan't she clara said mrs ledlam appealing to the sharp eleven-year-old daughter her eldest hope yes mar i'm willing to do anything she was ladylike and pleasant and gave no trouble quite a superior person said mrs ledlam any one could see that edmund administered another five-pound note as an earnest of future favours and left the dreary arbour to go back to london and to willoughby crescent he had to walk back to hatfield through the unknown lanes in the deepening dusk carrying a heavier heart than he had ever known yet for the pain of sylvia's desertion two years ago seemed light when looked back upon in comparison with the anguish of knowing her to be the guilty creature she was he arrived at willoughby crescent late in the evening and here he found mr carew in a wretched and uneasy state the whole household was disorganized lady perriam had gone none knew whither what is to be done asked mr carew helplessly i know nothing have been kept in the dark treated as a cipher she has gone knowing that shame and disgrace were inevitable if she remained said edmund when the father had finished his fretful lamentings perhaps it is better that it should be so flight was the only escape possible to her if she has but found a safe asylum i am content i who have loved her so dearly but then came the thought of a darker possibility what if she had rushed out of that house restless and despairing to find the surest escape in death edmund questioned celine as to the manner of her mistress's departure the girl could tell him nothing except that lady perriam had gone that she must have left the house dressed in her weeds and could have taken nothing with her except a small morocco bag which was the only object celine had missed from the dressing-room this looked bad but edmund did not despair she may have taken money in the bag and money will buy everything do you know if she had any money in the house yes sir i have seen a bundle of notes in her jewel-case bring me the jewel-case the case was brought edmund smashed the lock with a poker and examined the case in celine's presence the money was gone and the diamonds celine knew that both had been in the case on the previous night thank god exclaimed edmund when he and mr carew were alone she has not thought of making away with herself she would not have taken money and diamonds if she had any idea of suicide there's no fear of suicide replied mr carew calmly it doesn't run in our family there was nothing more to be done she had escaped all interrogation she had ample means of maintenance for some time to come she had done the best for herself i do not know that i could have advised anything better if i had been at her side edmund thought sadly and now she and i are indeed parted she to be a nameless wanderer i a desolate broken-hearted man my mother was too true a prophet when she told me that my love for sylvia carew was fatal 
his mother that name took his thoughts back to headingham to the home whose doors he had shut against himself there lay the bitterest humiliation to go back to confess that he had wasted all the passion of his youth upon a worthless woman no i will not call her worthless he said whatever her sin was she did all for my sake my lips shall not condemn her he left willoughby crescent and went back to that dreariest of all abodes for the dejected his hotel here after a brief and tasteless meal the first food he had eaten since eight o'clock in the morning he drew the lamp near him and opened mrs carter's manuscript it was nearly midnight the house quiet the servants at rest in their chambers in the norman gothic roof only the night watchman on guard below mr standen had no fear of interruption in the perusal of these closely written pages a reading that would doubtless be full of pain mrs carford's confession i write these lines with the knowledge that my troubled life is rapidly drawing to its lonely close write with the thought and fear of death before my eyes write because i feel that it is my duty to the living to leave behind me a clear and truthful confession of my sin even though by so doing i may bring sorrow and shame upon her for whom i sinned and who is the sole object of my love and pity i believe that it is better for her peace on earth and beyond earth that the truth should be known the first suffering will be lighter than the last better for her that her wrong-doing should be revealed while justice may yet be done while her victim still lives and some atonement may be made than later when his life may have been shortened by her sin and atonement may have become impossible she will say perhaps that her mother's sole legacy is shame and grief for her but let her believe that her mother's last thoughts were full of tenderness for her and that even in this act of confession her ultimate peace was the chief object of that unhappy mother's desire when i first came to parium place as nurse and attendant to sir aubrey parium the change in my mode of existence was so complete that it seemed to me like the beginning of a new life from the deepest poverty from the most sordid surroundings from the ceaseless struggle for daily bread from a life whose present deprivations were darkened by the shadow of the future which might bring even worse misery i found myself suddenly placed in a position of perfect ease and comfort luxuries that i had not known for years again at my command my wants provided for without an effort or a thought of mine all this i owed to lady perriam my benefactress who had seen me in my distress and whose benevolence had been enlisted by my abject misery lady perriam who knew not that the object of her charity was her most unhappy mother all that was demanded of me in return for these new and manifold blessings was unvarying devotion to my patient that i conscientiously rendered i can safely say that for the first year of my residence at perriam my duty was never out of my thoughts i felt for my helpless patient a pity which was almost affection he was troublesome he was exacting my nights were often broken my days always laborious but his affliction ensured my compassion and the study of my life was to lighten the burden of his wearisome existence lady perriam's son was born my grandson and his birth awoke a new joy in my heart it was my most cherished privilege to watch beside the infant's cradle to hold him in my arms but this delight i only enjoyed at intervals and by the favour of the nurse it was not selfish pleasure alone which i felt in that dear one's birth i rejoiced for the sake of her who was dearer still 
the daughter to whom i never dared to reveal myself lest she should shrink from me with contempt or aversion now i said to myself my sylvia will be happy if her life has been hitherto purposeless and unhappy spent in the gloomy silence of this old house ministering to a husband who is dead in life now all will be changed this first-born son will occupy her empty heart absorb all her thoughts all her care become the centre of all her hopes this is what i hoped and believed and for a little while it seemed as if my hope was to be realized so long as novelty gave a charm to the endearments of her babe sylvia was happy but even in her happiness i saw with deepest pain that the pleasure she derived from her first-born son was rather the delight of a child in the possession of a new toy than the deep joy of maternity little by little she tired of the child's company complained that he was troublesome lost her interest in his welfare and left him more and more to the care of his nurse then indeed i trembled for my poor child's safety for i saw that the one influence which would have purified her nature redeemed it from all its original imperfections was wanting i remembered my own wedded life and its guilty close remembered how wanting in maternal love i had torn myself away from my infant daughter forfeited for ever the right to claim her affection or duty time went on and i saw sylvia growing sadder and more despondent she took no pleasure in life if she came to the sick room and sat by her husband's armchair for a quiet hour in the long day her restless melancholy air showed that she was performing an irksome duty even sir aubrey's dull perceptions were sometimes aware of this go away sylvia he would say go and be happy away from your afflicted husband why do you stop in this dull room it makes me miserable to see your sad face one night i went to lady perriam at a later hour than usual with a message from sir aubrey i knocked at her dressing-room door and receiving no answer ventured to open it and go in she was on her knees on the ground her head flung upon the sofa cushions in an attitude of utter self-abandonment her hands clasped convulsively amongst the loose dishevelled hair which fell over her shoulders her whole frame shaken by the violence of her sobs the sight of her grief made me forget all the restraints of prudence and my supposed position in that house i knelt beside her lifted her head and laid it on my bosom wiped the tears from her pale cheeks kissed her with a mother's passionate love sylvia i cried sylvia my beloved child what is this secret grief confide in me trust me not a stranger but your own mother in whom should you trust if not in me it was some time before she answered me and before those convulsive sobs had slowly exhausted themselves while she was becoming gradually calmer i told her my own wretched story briefly but without sparing myself the record of my own guilt she received the intelligence with wonderful tranquillity or rather as if some grief of her own so absorbed her mind that she was hardly capable of feeling surprise if you are my mother you ought to be true to me she said at last yes and help me and stand by me in my hour of need do you think i should ever again forsake you sylvia i said in the sinful years of my youth your childish image haunted me in every hour remorse for the wrong i had done you was the bitterest anguish of all i had to suffer if heaven gives me an opportunity of atoning for that wrong i shall not be slow to seize it you mean that you would stand by me so long as my acts were such as god and man would approve 
said sylvia with a thoughtful look but if i went out of the straight course if i asked you to do something that involved difficulty or even danger would you stand by me then yes sylvia if i could reconcile the act with my own conscience conscience exclaimed my daughter with a sneer since when have you had a conscience from the hour of my wrongdoing remorse awakened my sleeping conscience well mother she exclaimed lightly i am not going to put your courage or your affection to the test what could you do to help me nothing you could not lighten my burden by a feather's weight i don't think it is a very heavy burden for you to bear sylvia you have all things which the world calls good let the world judge for itself and not for me she cried contemptuously i have not the only blessing that could make life happy for me i have lost the love of the only man i ever cared for you must have made up your mind to live without that sylvia when you married sir aubrey Perriam. oh i was dazzled blinded bewildered by my father's worldly arguments stung by mrs standon's insolence it seemed a grand revenge upon her to marry her son's superior i forgot that i could not live without edmund i did not know my own heart hardly knew that i had a heart but i have seen him to-day i passed him in monkhampton high street saw scorn and regret both in his face and came home home to this dreary house more completely miserable than i have ever been yet i tried to convince her of the wickedness of these regrets this useless sorrow but with no effect she poured her tale of love and grief into my ear told me of her brief engagement to mr standon his courage his devotion and how she had rewarded him by desertion she humiliated herself to the dust and though i was compelled to blame i could not withhold my pity is there any hope of release for me she asked at last looking at me intently with those full bright eyes which are always most steadfast when there is some evil thought in her mind in sir aubrey's wretched state he cannot linger long i should think do not cling to that wicked hope i answered mr stimson told me only a week ago that sir aubrey's health has improved wonderfully within the last few months and that although he may never regain clearness of intellect or the active use of his left side he may live to be a very old man what a burden she exclaimed a burden to himself and a burden to me and we are to go dawdling on year after year with the same joyless objectless existence when i married i thought i was to lead a life of splendour and pleasure that the world would teach me to forget my forsaken lover do you think i should have been mad enough to enter knowingly upon such a life as this the life of a convent or a prison i was twenty times happier at the schoolhouse if i had only known it she added with a profound sigh i urged her to do her duty meekly and patiently so that she might feel the tranquil blessedness of a life well spent i reminded her of her many advantages and entreated her to contrast her life with the miserable existences which filled that nethermost world where poverty reigns supreme be happy that your husband is spared to you and that by your devotion to him in his declining years you may prove your gratitude for the affection which has raised you from the village schoolmaster's daughter to be mistress of Perriam place i said appealing to her worldliness as a last resource be kind to him while you have the power there is one in this house to whom you have not been overkind and who may soon have passed beyond the reach of human kindness or unkindness 
whom do you mean sylvia asked eagerly mordred perriam he has been slowly fading ever since the shock of his brother's seizure slipping unawares out of life he rarely complains and his descriptions of his malady are so vague and rambling that it is hard to make out the nature of his sufferings no one ever takes any notice of him he is of no importance here a figure always in shadow i have spoken to mr stimson more than once about him but mr stimson only shrugs his shoulders and says that mr perriam was always a poor creature no stamina organic derangement will go off some day like the snuff of a candle poor fellow i have done what i can for him but it is very little and do you really think he is dying asked sylvia in a half whisper i will not say that but i believe that his life hangs by the feeblest thread a thread that may snap at any moment sylvia was silent and seemed lost in thought have you ever noticed the resemblance between sir aubrey and his brother she asked at last it is impossible for any one to avoid noticing so strong a resemblance do you think the likeness has increased since you have been here to a marked degree and now one brother might easily be mistaken for the other by a casual observer perhaps not by any one who was intimate with either of the brothers but seen at a distance or seen for a moment only or in a half-light one might be mistaken for the other very easily i wondered at questions which seemed frivolous and purposeless sylvia said no more upon the subject and dismissed me after promising to conquer her grief and to think no more of edmund standen for about six weeks life at perriam went on in the usual way there was only one change but that was a marked one lady perriam was a great deal kinder and more attentive to her husband she spent more of her time in his room never failed to be by his side when he took his airing on the terrace read to him conversed with him bore with his fretful childish ways and seemed in everything all that a wife should be in my foolish blindness i was proud of the change i thought that my weak words had caused this improvement mr bain left england and about two days after his departure mr perriam who had up to this time been able to shuffle to and fro between his own rooms and his brother's was utterly prostrated by a kind of low fever which followed a severe cold i suggested to lady perriam that mr stimson should see her brother-in-law but she said no peremptorily i was a better doctor for such simple ailments than mr stimson she told me and i was to nurse mr perriam mr stimson would give him saline draughts and rob him of the little strength he has left she said you can bring him round again with beef tea and jellies i obeyed the illness appearing a very simple one but i hardly took into account the low ebb to which the patient's strength had fallen he was not actually confined to his bed but sat and dozed by the fire in his easy-chair i went into his room and attended to him as often as i could venture to leave sir aubrey who was always an exacting invalid mr perriam was all patience received my attention with gratitude and thanked me repeatedly in his feeble voice for my care he asked me to place his chair within reach of some bookshelves close beside the mantelpiece but placed somewhat high he could just manage to reach the lowest row of books without rising from his chair though too weak to read more than a few minutes at a stretch it amused him to take down the books and turn the leaves reading a line here and there 
he had remained in this state for two days growing neither better nor worse and i saw no reason for apprehension feeble as i knew him to be late on the evening of the second day i left lady perriam's dressing-room to take mordred a basin of broth for his supper it was between ten and eleven the servants were all gone to bed jean chapelain having retired early complaining of gout i had strong reason to suspect that this pretended gout was only a disguise for nightly intoxication chapelain's services in the sick-room had long been of the feeblest order he assisted at his master's morning toilette read a french novel to him occasionally and sometimes appeared at ten o'clock to assist in putting sir aubrey to bed for the rest of the evening he generally contrived to be missing all was quiet in sir aubrey's room when i left sylvia to go to mr perriam the baronet had gone to bed earlier than usual to suit the convenience of chapelain and was sleeping peacefully i went through the passage of communication to mr perriam's room he sat in the armchair where i had left him beside the wood fire the ruddy blaze of the log shining full upon him at the first glance which i cast towards that motionless figure i uttered a cry of fear and hurried forward setting down the broth basin hastily as i passed the table his head was thrown back upon the pillow i had placed to support it one arm was raised above the head but hung loose and nerveless an open book lay on the pillow beside the drooping grey head mordred perriam was dead he might have died any time within the last hour only an hour ago i had arranged his pillows and given him his dose of weak brandy and water it was clear to me that he had raised himself to reach that volume from one of the higher shelves and that even this slight exertion had been enough to snap the feeble thread of life while i stood gazing at him in pained astonishment a light step approached me and looking round i saw lady perriam standing on the other side of the hearth arrested spellbound perhaps by the aspect of that quiet figure in the armchair what has happened she asked mr perriam is dead no not mr perriam sir aubrey is dead mr perriam may survive him for many years never had i heard her tone more decided never had i seen such a look of decision in her pale-set face what do you mean i asked i mean that the time has come for you to stand by me and help me as you promised you would do when the time should come i do not ask any desperate act from you i only ask you to help me and be true to me sir aubrey is dead in life almost as dead as yonder corpse what can it matter to him what name he bears in his living grave what need he care whether he is called aubrey or mordred as mordred he would have the same care the same indulgence not a desire of his feeble mind ungratified what madness is this i exclaimed you can never dream of attempting to substitute this dead man for your living husband that is exactly what i do mean she answered resolutely it matters nothing to that paralytic old man whether he is nominal master of perriam or not whether he occupies one set of rooms or another but it matters a great deal to me to be free from the hateful bondage that changed me to this dreary house to be sir aubrey's widow instead of his wife i need not record my remonstrances all that a mother could say to dissuade her child from a desperate and wicked act i said not once but with passionate despairing iteration sylvia held firmly to her purpose and told me with every appearance of a fixed resolve that if i refused to help her in this vile scheme refused to set her free as she called it she would make away with herself before the dawn of to-morrow's light she was utterly weary of her life and would endure it no longer 
if she lost this one chance of freedom at last in weakness and despair i consented to an act which has poisoned my life with the bitterness of useless remorse in the dead of the night when all the house was wrapped in sleep we contrived with infinite labour and trouble to remove sir aubrey on a couch from his own apartments to his brother's dragging that heavy couch along the passage with as little sound as was possible yet not without sufficient noise to have betrayed us had any of the household slept at that end of the house fate favoured my daughter's crime for we had the east wing entirely to ourselves and there was little fear of our movements being overheard lady perriam acted with a presence of mind and energy that knew no limit it was an opiate of her administering which enabled us to remove sir aubrey to his new quarters it was her quick intelligence which arranged every detail of that evil work before daybreak all was over and mordred perriam lay upon sir aubrey's bed his limbs composed in the last awful slumber his beard and hair arranged so as to increase his likeness to the baronet and that likeness stronger in death than it had ever been in life End of chapter sixty five